Good evening. Your day of second stringers continues this evening with me. David Shannon is out of town. And as many of you in our classes know, I have a difficult time coming up with an application. And before David left to go out of town, I meant to get his preacher's book of barely believable stories and get it and be able to have something to talk about tonight. So I thought about something I know a little something about, and that's football. And my title for the lesson tonight was Commitment to Excellence. And we're going to look at that in the way of our Christian lives. But some of you in here are very scant. Few of you may be Oakland Raiders fans. And you know that that is that team's motto, a commitment to excellence. So I started thinking through in my mind, I've got a motto that goes with the Oakland Raiders. Today is December 23rd, and in 1972, the Immaculate Reception took place. So I thought, well, everybody these days is talking about Jesus' birth and the Immaculate Conception. Maybe I'll just use an analogy using Immaculate Reception and go to football. And when we think about it in football, some of you that were Titans fans may not believe me saying this today, but there is a commitment to excellence for somebody to be a champion in football and to play at that level requires a commitment. I know people talk a lot about the money these athletes make and how tall they are, how big they are, how fast they are. But what separates the men from the boys, and my favorite thing is to go back and look at the greats of professional football. I don't watch college ball. But what made those guys great is their commitment to do everything it took to be excellent in all they did. They worked harder. They were in the weight room longer. They got in better shape. They were there early doing things. And for them to be champions and for them to be remembered and for them to have their head, a bust of their head in Canton, Ohio, in the Hall of Fame, they had to have a commitment to excellence. And for us to be good Christians, for us to share the gospel with people out in the lost world, we have to have a commitment to excellence. And not just in what we do on Sundays and Wednesdays or in the privacy of our home. We want to look at our lives from a broad spectrum. Everything that we do needs to be a commitment to excellence. And the scriptures speak to that. And they speak to it with good reason. And whenever I try to prepare a lesson, I try to prepare a lesson that I need to study. That I, and of course, I need to study everything in the Bible, so I don't mean to say that every lesson I do is not something that I need. But I need this lesson, too, as we share with you tonight. And I want you to be open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 17 through 24. I've only got six passages of Scripture tonight, so I'm not going to wear you all out too bad. I know everybody's got family to go home to. But we think about two words that are kind of pertinent this time of year, and we hear the word resolution a lot. I know when I go back to the gym on the morning of January the 3rd, I'm not going to go on January 2nd. But when I get back in town and go on January the 3rd, it's probably going to be a little more crowded than it was when I went earlier this past week. Because there's going to be a lot of resolutions made. And there's a difference between a resolution and a commitment. A resolution is a statement or a resolve to say, I'm going to do this. And many of you, like I need to do, may say, I need to lose weight. I need to get in better shape. Perhaps you will do things better in your Christian life. I'm going to get more involved in church. I'm going to study my Bible more. Whatever that resolution is, is all fine. And everything has to begin with a resolution. But a resolution is not a commitment. A commitment is an action. It's a dedication. It's doing something actively. It's when you go and you get in better shape. When you run. If you say, I'm going to run a marathon, that's all great. It's when you train to run it and actually run it that you have that commitment. And for us to have a commitment of excellence in our lives in every aspect, we don't need to compartmentalize our lives and say, well, I've got my work life and I've got my married life and then I've got my Christian life. That doesn't exist. Your Christian life spreads over every bit of that. It comes above and beyond all of those things and all of those things are under that umbrella of your Christian life. 
And I want to urge you to kind of look at the scriptures with me tonight as we examine different aspects of our life, in our home, in our workplace, and certainly amongst brothers and sisters, that we need to have a commitment of excellence. And there's a reason for that. And it's because other people are watching you. Whether you're in your 80s or in your teens, whatever that is, somebody is watching you if you claim to be a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, people are listening to what you say and watching what you do. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. We've got to put this in context. The first part of Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul is talking to the Christians in Rome and talking about how the Gentiles ought to know God through creation, through the beauty of creation. It ought to be inherent in them to know God. But instead, they started worshiping things that were created and idolatry. And God gave them over to a sinful life. And in chapter 2, he begins to speak to the Jews. And in verse 17, he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And you are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You have abhorred idols. Do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Can we substitute our own name in here for the Jews and for the lost of the world to be the Gentiles that he's speaking of? Because when we say we're something, but yet we do something contrary, when we know God's law, and we chastise others perhaps for not following parts of God's law, but we in of ourselves don't follow God's law as a rule of our life, are we not the reason that, the, that God's name is blasphemed, which means spoken evil of or ridiculed amongst the lost of this world? You know, we're all that God's got in this world as Christians. Jesus described us as the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you're the light of the world. The city that's set on a hill can't be hidden. You don't put a basket over a light when you light it. You let it shine, and we're God's light uh, into that world. People are watching every aspect of our conduct and what we do. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. In every aspect, are we just saying at church we're going to behave properly? In things that are related to church and ministry, we're going to behave properly? Or in all aspects, as husbands, as wives, as mothers, as fathers, as employees, as citizens, and as Christians, are we going to do those things? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 25. It's on page 1047 in your pew Bible. There's a parallel between these verses uh, in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And also over in Ephesians chapter 5 in the beginning part of chapter 6. So I want to hit a couple of few points right in here very quick. And these may be some verses that you're very familiar with that you've seen is as we read along, look at what it has to say about the different parts of your life. Wives, submit to your own husband as is fitting in the Lord. This is compared over to Ephesians 5.22. Obey the Lord in submitting to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. That Greek word love there is not romantic love. It's a passionate love, a brotherly love, a caring love. And according to the example of Christ, we see over in Ephesians, as Christ loved the church to nurture and cherish her. And husbands, we have to do that. As a husband, 
I have to do that. This is a commandment no different than any other commandment in the scriptures. I can't claim to love God and worship according to his commandments and not fulfill my role as a husband according to his commandments. It's the same sin to break God's law in that way. We see children. Listen to this, children. If you are under the the authority of your parents, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. We think about one of the Ten Commandments and honoring your father and mother. That Hebrew word means to be burdensome. It is something that you need to put on. It's something that you need to carry. And obeying your parents, you guys, you young people that claim to be Christians, if you're disobedient to your parents, if you rebel against their authority, you cannot claim to be walking the Christian walk. It doesn't exist. You can't do both things in doing those things. You know, society can't function without children who are obedient to their parents. There's a reason that God gave that law to his people when they went into the promised land so that they would be different so that their civilization would survive. These laws are not just religious laws that were given to God's people. They were set apart to be different in amongst a sinful and idolatrous world where even child sacrifice was practiced. They were to be different and no society can successfully function for a long period of time with disobedient and rebellious children. And parents, we need to nurture that environment. We see that fathers are not to provoke their children to wrath or discourage them, but raise them in the training and admonition of the Lord. That word training, I looked up and said the cultivation of mind and morals. So that made me think about a farmer cultivating the soul, working it, making it a process. It's active training. And the admonition is a setting in the mind. We need to be setting in the mind of our children the things of God. If we practice those things, our children will fail us, they will disobey us, they will do things that disappoint us, just like we did when we were young people, or at least just like I did when I was a young person. I know some of you may have been a little bit better than that. But just as we did, they're going to disappoint, but they will not stray from it completely if we nurture and cherish them. They will know where to turn. They will know what decisions to make. They will make bad decisions. And that's part of learning in life. We get wisdom by being punished when we make bad decisions, and our children need to do that. But we as parents need to cultivate them and set in their mind the things of the Lord. When I see the passage about bond servants, it says, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a bond servant. A bond servant is somebody that goes to work because he owes money or has a debt to pay. Now, some of you in here may have no bills. You may have no debts to pay. You may have no cost, no bills coming in that you have to pay, and you may not have to work. But I have to work, and most everybody has to work because we have this. So in today's time, I would make application to this to employees, and the latter verses to employers on how we behave, how it says we have to behave. We have to obey in all things our masters. You know, we get to choose our employer. We get to choose who we're going to let be our master. But not according to the flesh, just to please men, and there's plenty of people that do good at work just to please the boss and be noticed for secular. But what reason? In sincerity of heart, fearing God. And in verse 23 of Colossians 3, we see a verse that kind of sounds like a verse from over in Ecclesiastes. It says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Realize that everything you do, husbands, fathers, mothers, Wives, employees, citizens, children, everything that you do, do good and righteous 
so as to please the Lord, not just to please people. Masters, we see here in verse 4, chapter 1, or chapter 4, verse 1, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you happen to be an employee or a supervisor or a manager of people, you should treat them people fairly and realize that you have a master in heaven that is in authority over you and will judge you by your actions and how you treat those people that you have earned to you. What kind of Christian employer is putting a godly impression on his employees when he treats them terribly and disrespectfully and harshly? They are going to look at you and think that is the kind of person that is involved with Christ. I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be any part of that. Remember in every aspect of your life what you give. I thought about Proverbs chapter 31, and we're not going to read that in its entirety, but as you may know, in 31, 10 through 31, we see the proverb about the virtuous woman. And we think about the great attributes that this woman had. They weren't just religious. The attributes that she had, the qualities that she had were because she feared God. And I wrote me down a list of those things, that she was trusted by her husband, she worked hard, she rose early, she provided food, she managed property, she sold merchandise, she gave to the poor, she managed her household and children well, she was honorable, her speech was sown with wisdom and kindness, she was praised by her children, and her husband was esteemed because of her and praised at the gates among the elders of the city. What a great influence. For those that falsely teach that ladies have nothing to do in the church need to think about what the book of Proverbs has to say. It is because of this woman's work and dedication that her family and her husband were honored and known. And what a fine example that is preserved for us. That proverb follows right up King Lemuel's mother saying, this is the kind of woman you need to be out there marrying and choosing what you do. That word heartily in verse 23 of chapter 3 means literally from the soul. Whatever you do, do it from your soul and as to the Lord and not to men. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. Verses 11 through 17. We think about our lives as citizens. And we're fortunate in this country that we have the right legally to speak out against things that we don't agree with in our government. We have the right to freely elect our leaders you know, everybody likes to live in a democracy until the majority doesn't agree with you. But we live in a democracy, and we have the right to speak out. We don't have the right to break laws in doing that. And Christians are admonished both in 1 Peter chapter 2 and also in Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2 about our relationship as citizens. In verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. I love Mr. Henson's prayer this morning as we prayed for our president and for our leadership, our Congress, we need to be prayerful for those people. Whether or not you agree with their politics or not, they are your leaders, elected in a system of government that you choose to live under. I talk to the prisoners a lot in jail, and they can't stand the court system. They don't like the laws of this country. I tell them to move. Go try it out. I've been to a lot of foreign countries, and I love, I love living under the laws that I live under. 
because the other ones are a lot worse. I tell them, if you don't like the laws of Tennessee or Wilson County or the city of Mount Juliet or the United States of America, you are free to leave, to go somewhere else. But if you choose to live under that government, then you choose to obey its laws. And we look in Romans 13, we see a lot of things. Resisting authority resists God and brings judgment. Rendering due taxes is commanded. It is a sin for you to lie and cheat the government out of due taxes. It is a sin against God. God put them in place. Like I said, if you don't like the taxes here, I invite you to move somewhere else and pay them elsewhere because you have some of the lowest in the world. The authorities will judge and punish evildoers. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 commands we make prayers, intercessions, and petitions to God on behalf of our leaders so that God will bless them. Guys, we can't go to work. We can't go to school. We can't be amongst our friends and brag about things that we've done to break the law. I'm as guilty of anyone of breaking the speed limit. I'm as guilty of anyone from changing lanes too quickly, for driving distracted, maybe using my phone while I'm driving. And some people even brag about that, how fast I drove to work today. I can go 85 miles an hour down the interstate. We wouldn't probably dream of going to the office and bragging about being a drunk driver. But if you change lanes quickly and you speed and you drive with distractions, you are two times as likely to kill someone. You do, in fact, kill twice as many people in this country as drunk drivers. We can't walk into the workplace and be bragging about how we break the law and think people don't see that negatively. As Christians, we can't think of coming there and say, well, here's how I cheated the government out of some tax money that was honestly due to them and think that that's a good reflection on people. We have to be excellent in our behavior among the lost or else we'll do God's name injustice. We'll cause it to be blasphemed. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We've talked about a lot of different places. Let's start getting down to the meat. As disciples of God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. I didn't do a good job of writing down the pew Bible numbers, but you just have to use, you have to practice what you learned in school. 2 Timothy 2 and 15, it says, Be diligent to preserve yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That word diligent means to exert yourself to make an extra effort to strive to rightly divide God's word, to be a worker before him. I think of 1 Peter 2 in chapter 2. We're supposed to crave, crave the pure milk of God's word, just like a newborn baby craves milk. A newborn baby has to have that milk to survive. Therefore, the Bible is saying that we have to be good disciples, good students. We should be excellent students of the Bible. Now, I realize that not everybody is going to have a knowledge of the scriptures uh, that is extensive as others. You know, there are people that get to spend their lives uh, devoted to the scripture. There are people who have educations high up to the doctorate level in the scriptures. But every one of us can know our Bible in an excellent manner. Every one of us has a Bible available in a language that we speak in a translation that you're comfortable with, that you research and make sure is valid and well-written. And read your Bible. 15 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, whatever it is. We should be excellent students of God's Word. Because if we don't, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, if we don't know God's Word, we cannot be equipped to do good work. That's what all Scripture is good for. For all that list of things, it's so the man of God can be equipped for good work. I think about in 1 Timothy about leadership. 
the leadership of this congregation, our 11 elders, have some pretty strong things that they have to adhere to. They must be excellent. They must commit themselves to a life of excellence. They're to be blameless. And 1 Timothy says, to the outside world, they're supposed to look as blameless. They can't be spoken evil of by people outside the church. So that means their behavior outside the church has to be excellent. Folks, that doesn't mean just elders have to have excellent behavior outside the church. There's nothing on the spiritual qualifications of an elder or deacon that are vacated upon the rest of us. There's nothing that they're told to do that we're not told elsewhere in Scripture to do scripturally. There are some physical limitations on being an elder or a deacon, and there's some marriage roles. But the spiritual roles, they're mentioned all over the Bible for us to be part of. Do we think just our eldership is not to behave or supposed to behave outside the church well so they're not spoken evil of and that we as Christians aren't supposed to be? We are the body of Jesus Christ. And if we're not going to be spoken well of outside the church, that means that people are not speaking well of the name of Jesus Christ, and we have run it through the mud. We can't blame anybody else in the world for doing those. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I promise I'm almost done. I was told to be brief tonight. It's very difficult. In 1 Corinthians 14, I think about something else among the saints. In this letter to the church in Corinth that Paul was writing, he had to straighten out a lot of things. And there's a lot of long discourses in 14. And the context of this chapter is people who have the miraculous gift of prophecy and speaking in languages they weren't educated in. That's what speaking in tongues means. It means speaking in a language that you're not educated in by miraculous power. And God has given us all talents and gifts. We don't have miraculous gifts anymore. We don't have any need for those things. But there was a reason for the gifts that God gave to people. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, we see even you, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, since you're excited and long for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. And folks, that's why we should seek to excel. For the edification of the church. For the building up, for the strengthening, for the reinforcing, for the improving of God's church. We should seek to excel with the gifts that we have been given. And everyone in this room was created by the God that created this whole universe. And you have all been given some sort of gift. For some people it may be being in front of people and speaking. For some it may be teaching a Bible class. For some it may be evangelism out in public. It may be doing things behind the scenes that nobody knows about. Maintenance, changing light bulbs, working on things. Whatever we do, whatever we do, let it be for the building up of the church. And have that attitude in ourselves in doing those things that we have. When I think about in Galatians 5 and the fruits of the Spirit that we have in chapter 5 and verse 22, these are things that people should see. We'll be known by our fruits. If we don't produce good fruits, people are going to see us in a bad light, in a bad way. And when I think about just some of these fruits of the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these are all attributes that other people can see. As we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to look at verses 21 through 25 as a closure to what we have to say. Keep in mind that what we've talked about tonight, every aspect of your life, we can see an example in the Bible of how we're supposed to be excellent in our behavior, in our example, how we're supposed to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. 
I don't do a perfect job of that. I have failed miserably in that in my life. And we will all disappoint at times. But if your lifestyle is a commitment, not just lip service, not a resolution that I'm going to be a strong Christian and I'm going to make a good example outside here, but in my speech, in my manners, in my behavior, in my actions, I am going to make a commitment. I am going to act. You don't resolve to do something and then not do it. That's just word service. I'm going to commit to doing it. And we're going to commit to doing two things in this world. We're either going to commit to serving Christ and God, or we're going to commit to serving Satan. There's no other teams. Those are the only two teams on the ball field. And if you're not here and you're not a Christian tonight, whether you like to hear it or not, you are committed to serving Satan's kingdom. That pitiful kingdom that it is, you're committed to serving that because you're not committed to serving God. And when you're against God, you're for Satan. We think about the example of Jesus Christ, how he committed. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25, Peter says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. This is key here. Leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He committed himself to he who judges righteously. It's talking about God the Father there. Jesus committed to doing what was right when he himself bore our sins in his own body on that tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus committed himself to the cross. When did he commit to the cross. Do we recall that in the Garden of Gethsemane he prayed three times for God to take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Just after Peter hacked off the ear of Malchus and Jesus corrected him and said, do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels to help me escape from this? I don't need your sword. He could have escaped then. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. He did so to fulfill the will of his father that plan of salvation that he freely gave himself as a sacrifice in doing it. He could have called 12 legions of angels. I know from the book of 2 Kings that one angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrians by himself. So what can 12 legions, which is probably 70 to 100,000 angels, do in that? Jesus went to the cross and freely sacrificed himself. And here we follow his himself as an example. In order for us to commit ourselves to excellence, we're going to have to distance ourselves from selfishness. We're going to have to not commit to the flesh. We're going to have to do away with what we want in a lot of cases and do what's best for the kingdom of God. And that's not always what's best for us. What had been best for Paul and easiest for Paul is to go back home to Tarsus and not go and get beaten and whipped and stoned and put in prison for the cause of the gospel of Christ but instead, he put away what was important to him, this great lifestyle that he had. He had a good life, and he was a, a very good man and well-known person. He could have remained in that way and not gone for the cause of Christ. But instead, he took this message, like Peter concludes here in verse 25, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's writing to Christians. He's talking about sheep that have gone astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's Jesus Christ. 
You might be here tonight and you haven't made that commitment to excellence. Jesus has got a great covenant to follow. It's the best deal you'll ever get. You put on him in baptism, you walk in the light, you practice righteousness as taught in the scriptures, and he will give you a home in heaven one day. He has gone to prepare that place for those who choose to follow him. I urge you, if you're here tonight, and you understand what you need to do, if you understand why you need to change, why you need to repent and be baptized for the mission of your sins, here in a few minutes as we sing, I want you to come forward. I want you to do that tonight. I don't know when the world's going to end. Obviously, the mind calendar didn't end the world on the winter solstice. We don't know when that's going to be. It could be five minutes from now. It could be 5,000 years from now. We don't know, and even Jesus doesn't know. And one thing's for sure, you don't know. But if you know you're lost, you better correct it now. If you don't understand why, come and let us study with you. There is no shame in not understanding why you need to be baptized. The Apostle Paul When he began his Christian wall, he didn't fully understand. He had to have it revealed to him by God. And he was a scholar of the scriptures, a godly man with all good conscience. So don't be ashamed if you need to study more about that. If you haven't made that.